Hope you brought your Bible. You're going to need it. Turn to Galatians 5. Hey, while you're finding that, could I tell you a little story? Um, I guess you couldn't say no, could you? But I want to tell you a little story. Um, I had lunch with a guy on Friday, and, and he uh, is one of the iPhone crowd, and, and I am not. I'm uh, the unsophisticate uh, of the world. Uh, but anyway, he's got an iPhone, and he showed me this new app uh, application for those of you. He showed us this new app that he was all excited about. And it was uh, it was a game. It was called Millionaire. Have any of you seen that the, the application Millionaire? It's a game that you can play. And in the game, you are given $100,000. Now, it's all play money. I mean, it's, it's you know, not really. But you what you do is you invest your, your $100,000, and then you're ranked as to how your stocks do compared to 90,000 other people around the world. I guess it's around the world. It might have been around Memphis for all I know. But um, but <laughs> he said <laughs> his um, his investment strategies has, has brought him in 93,000th. Anyway, I don't know how you get 93,000th out of 90,000 people, but he, he is really, he's on the, he's not doing well. But he said, um, he said this to me. He said, um, you know what I find? I, I find myself, he's invested all these tech stocks. And he said, I find that I get up in the morning and I'm checking these stocks because I want to see how my stocks did. It's all, you know, play money and et cetera. But, you know, there's a very, very significant principle illustrated in that. And the principle is where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. You put your money in tech stocks, ladies and gentlemen, and you're going to wonder and wonder and wonder about how tech stocks are doing. But if you invest... Not, I'm not talking about your money. I'm talking about investing in things eternal. Then that's where your heart's going to follow. It's going to chase after the things that you've invested in. So all I'm, all I'm trying to say is, guys, um, I don't want you to come to the place one day where you've decided to quit. Church. Jesus. Religious stuff. But if you do, it'll be because you invested in the wrong place. You invested your heart. You put it in the wrong place, and now those things is the thing you're chasing. Just a a little brief, free-of-charge message that I'm going to try to find a million ways to say over the coming days. I'm going to say that same thing, just trying to find different ways to say it. Because it's so vitally important. Okay, guys. Now, back to Galatians 5. Let's um, let's begin reading at verse 16. Let's read this paragraph. Uh, beginning at verse 16 through 26. Uh, you follow in your copies as I read. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, Orgies and things like these. I warn you, 
as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, this word, it endures forever. I don't expect you remember this, guys, but uh, back in early June, I um, I spoke to your high school student children in Gulf Shores, Alabama, and we spent four uh, sermons on Galatians chapter 5. And I come back and I preach those four sermons, and this is the fourth of those four sermons. It, it, it takes a while to get them all in because we're so interrupted with July the 4th and, and of course, communion. So, But now is the fourth of those four sermons. You may recall that we looked at the first six verses in the first sermon. Um, that was where I was suggesting that Paul was comparing slavery and freedom. Then we came back in the second sermon. We looked at verse 13, which basically talks about how that freedom can be abused. We talk about, we talk about legalism and antinomianism being wrong responses to the freedom that we have in Christ. The third of those messages were really verses 16 through 18. We talked about the life that we live as Christians is a life in the spirit. That there's a battle that's going on. He, he mentions it there. Um, uh, but that was that was the, the third treatment of uh, Galatians chapter 5. But this morning we come to the fourth. And uh, really the text starts at verse 19 and ends at the end of the, the chapter. But we come to that portion of, um, of Galatians 5, to the portion that has made Galatians 5 famous. Now, l- let me tell you first of all what I'm going to do this morning. I'm going to give you, I'm going to try to, Roll off ten points. Now, I know you're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to have three in a poem. But I've got ten. Ten observations out of uh, these, these texts, these verses, that I hope will teach you this text. That's, that's my design. And, and, and teach you in such a way that it benefits your soul. That you will walk out of here with a greater understanding of who we are and what it is that um, we're up to as Christians. But ten points, so you just kind of try to stay with me. But guys... The portion of this passage that has made it famous is verses 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit. I'm I'm sure you've heard of uh, the fruit of the Spirit. That's the thing that people, I mean, in fact, a lot of times preachers will preach this passage and will devote a whole sermon to each one of these things. Love, joy, peace. There's four sermons right there, and 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 rightly so. It's it can be done, and and perhaps should be done, but that's not what I'm going to do. What I'm going to do is give you those ten points, in, in the hopes that this um, this text will become clear, that it'll be more beneficial, that you'll understand what it is that the Apostle Paul is up to. So you um, buckle up and uh, stay with me. I got ten points, as I said. The first three are somewhat introductory. Then at number four. We really dive headlong into the heartbeat of the text. So you try to keep up. Number one, the, the first thing of point one is don't confuse 
gifts of the Spirit with fruit of the Spirit. Now, guys, uh, there is another passage in the New Testament that talks about gifts of the Spirit. That would be 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and 14. You have gifts of the Spirit and you have fruit of the Spirit. The gifts of the Spirit are things like evangelism, teaching, giving, uh, mercy, those kinds of things. And But this is about fruits, uh, fruit of the Spirit. Gifts of the Spirit have to do with assignment, role, tasks, things that God has equipped you to do to benefit the body of Christ. Those are the gifts of the Spirit. Don't confuse those with this. This is the fruit of the Spirit, and this has to do with character. Character. Look at look at that stuff, folks. Love, joy, um, peace, patience, kindness. The fruit of the Spirit has to do with character. Number two, I, I want you to notice that there's more than one list in this passage. There is the list, of course, of the fruit of the Spirit, but you also get another list in verses 19 through 21. It's a list of the deeds of the flesh. Do you see that? And it is ugly indeed. Um, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, all, all that stuff. But what you're being given here, guys, is two lists that are being compared so that you and I can know a little bit more about the battle that you and I are in. That battle, Paul mentions in verses 16 and 17. And the two combatants in that battle are flesh and spirit. Those are just terms that Paul uses to describe what we were before we became Christians, flesh, and what we are, it's a title, what we are now that we've become Christians, spirit. That is, these two things, we are in a battle with those two elements inside of all of us, all of us who are bought by this uh, savior of ours, we're in a battle. Flesh is simply what we were and the remnants of it now that we've become Christians. And that battle rages in all of us. Now, number three. When you come to verse 22, and we're beginning to look at the, the, the list of the fruit of the Spirit, I want you to notice something. If you look at verse 22, he says, but the fruit, that's a singular word. And then he gives you a list of nine things. It's a singular word, fruit, and then he gives you nine things. Because, guys, you've got to think of this in terms of a cluster of grapes as opposed to a bag of lemons. The fruit of the Spirit is a cluster. And all of these nine things have an organic relationship one with the other. If you've got a bag of lemons, you can take out one, you can throw one, you can dump, you can spread them out on the table. They're unrelated. But fruit, this fruit, is a cluster. They're all attached. They're all connected. This is a, there is a, um, a, a biological relationship, an organic relationship between all these things. Here's the point. They're connected because they come together. They come together, which means this, guys. All of these things, not just one or two of them. All of these things are supposed to be true of all of us. That is, some of us might say, well, you know, I I like the the patience and the kindness stuff. Well, good. I'm glad you do. But all nine of them, you don't get to pick and choose. All nine of them are, if this is the fruit of the Spirit, and all nine of these things come together as a package, guys. All of these things are supposed to be true of all of us. Now, number four. 
And as I said, the first three were somewhat introductory, but number four, we get into the heart and meat of the text, guys. Gang, in this section of scripture, in this portion of the paragraph, Paul is giving us a picture, a picture of a supernaturally changed, transformed heart as compared to a morally restrained heart. He is contrasting two different kinds of hearts or two different kinds of people. The supernaturally transformed heart versus the morally restrained heart. And in some ways, those two people look a lot alike. And and um, and in some characteristics, uh, they're they're somewhat similar because um, y- you know you may even be successful in convincing the rest of us that your heart is a is a Christian heart when in fact it is nothing more than a morally restrained heart. Now, what is that? What am I talking about when I talk about a morally restrained heart? Guys, um, have you ever wondered why kids, let's just say, who uh, who they graduate from Christian high schools, or maybe they graduate from public high schools, and they and they um, they are part of the youth group at the church, and they go on the mission trips, and they're just regular parts of the youth program at your church, and then they graduate and they go off to college, and they absolutely lose their minds morally. Tell me, how often do you think that happens? Often. Why? Because you see, ladies and gentlemen, for a number of reasons and and, in a variety of ways, enough pressure has been brought to bear on these folks so that these kids are... They, they, they stay within moral boundaries. Um, there's pressure exerted on them by their parents or their church or their schools so that they conclude it is good for me to stay within these moral boundaries. But once those pressures are removed, oh my, they go crazy. Why? Because they really never had a heart for them in the first place. What they had is a morally restrained heart. Uh, and, and, and it has fooled the rest of us. And, and perhaps even fooled them. But now, once the pressure is removed... The truth gets exposed about the heart. And what was there all along comes gushing out. It's it's alarming. It's confusing for for the rest of us. Because, I mean, (laughs) gosh, I mean, they they were such a vital part of the youth group here, you know, at the church. And why why they went on the mission trip, they went to this and that and the other. Why she was in my discipleship program. And and boy, her her mother, her parents are big, big people, big workers over at that church over there. What happened? What happened is, ladies and gentlemen, is the difference between 
a supernaturally transformed heart versus a morally restrained heart. And you make no mistake, my friend. This is not simply describing high school students. It's describing their parents as well. That there is a difference between a heart that's morally restrained. And we look at it and we think, hmm, that's just like us. But given the certain set of circumstances, all of the restraints removed. And what was really in the heart in the first place comes gushing out. Guys, what I'm saying is, you have two lists in this passage. One of them is a, char- there are, is a list of characteristics that are true about the supernaturally transformed heart. The other list... It's describing another heart. It's describing a heart that's morally restrained at best. Number five. You need to listen to this. The fact that my heart may be supernaturally transformed, that is, the fact that I may be a Christian and that you may be a Christian, does not mean that I can't be guilty of some of the items on that other list. Very frankly, I'm capable of everything on that other list. I said that in in the third sermon two weeks ago. And I I, I alluded to Paul's statement in Romans chapter 7, where he says, the good that I would, I do not do, but the very evil I hate, I find myself doing. But ladies and gentlemen, you've got to... The difference has is, is bound up in about four words... That I find myself doing the very evil I hate. Guys, the supernaturally transformed heart hates his sin. I long to be like the Savior of mine, but I find I'm in a battle. And on occasion, I lose. I'm in a battle. Yes, I am. And I do the things that I that I hate. I lost my temper with one of my kids and stuff came gushing out of me that I couldn't I didn't know was in there. And within minutes I'm overcome. That I just did the very thing I hate. Number six. Non-Christians have no battle. They're only flesh. And they taste the little sin. And, and after this brief uprising of conscience, oh, they're back and looking for more. Sin, that is. Number seven, it's we Christians. It's we Christians who groan over our failures. 
And, and though this groaning and, and remorse is a right and a good thing, You need to understand, I say to you that there should be limits even on our groaning as Christians. It's, it's that groaning that was prompted by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that drives me back to Christ, back to the gospel where I'm, or I refresh myself over being reminded of the provisions that are made for me by the finished work of Christ, and then I get back in the battle. Yes! But there it ends! You know, there was a, there's a song. <laughs> oh, you hate it when I sing. But there's a song, it's an old song, and I'm really dating myself by, by telling you about this song. But it was sung by several different people. I mean, it, it, it had all kinds of versions to it. The one that I remember is the, is the version by Frank Sinatra. And even that name dates me. Some of you never heard of Frank Sinatra. Oh, golden mouth or tongue or whatever he was. Blue eyes, whoever. But anyway, the, the song goes like this. <clears throat> I've been a puppet, a pauper, a pirate, a poet. A pawn and a king, I've been up and down and over and out, and I know one thing. Each time I find myself lying flat on my face, I pick myself up and get back in the race. That's life. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, that's life. There's something almost Christian about that song. There's something almost Roman 7 about that song. It does. It does need a, a little bit of modifying. It should go something like this. Each time I find myself lying flat on my face, I take myself back to the gospel and refresh my soul over the provisions that are made for me in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I claim the forgiveness that is mine because of his finished work. And then I get back in the race. That's life. Guys. Um, I get back into the battle, begging God the Holy Spirit for more strength to avoid those big ditches that I just drove my life into. But once that's done, that's it. The moaning stops. Because I claim the refreshments and the promises that are made for me. Because Jesus did his work so well. My hope, my refreshment, my encouragements are all found in Christ and who he is and what he's done. You know, Paul's language back in Romans 17, excuse me, Romans 7, in verse 18, he, just listen, he says... For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right. But not the ability to carry it out. 
Ladies and gentlemen, that's how a Christian talks. The Christian understands that I have no ability. And if God the Holy Spirit does not provide for me, I'll spend most of my time in that ditch. Guys, I don't know how many times I've said this in the course of 20 years of ministry here. But I've told you what my favorite verse of scripture in the New Testament is. And I'm telling you, I think it ought to be your favorite too. It's this. It's Jesus' statement in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. He says, blessed are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. He, He doesn't say, blessed are they who've obtained righteousness. Because, ladies and gentlemen, none of us have. But I hunger for it. I thirst for it, don't you? Where did that come from? Where did that hunger and thirst come from? It came from. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God. Number eight. Meanwhile, the non-Christian still wonders where he's going to get the next thrill, the next buzz. And I, and I hope this doesn't come as a surprise to you, but the, the thrill du jour for your high school students is sexual immorality. Now, it, it won't always be that. I mean, after a while, you, you grow up and you, uh, and maybe you find that maybe this jealousies and envy stuff, maybe that's the thing that, uh, really overtakes me. Or, or maybe it's just, maybe it's just, you know, the thrill of pursuing the next thing that the culture tells me ought to make me happy. Or maybe if I really grow up and be a big boy, Maybe the thing that I want is more to drink. And you, my friend, are a slave. And I want you to notice in verse 21, in verse 21, he says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Is there any word in that sentence that you don't understand? Just take a look at the list, folks. If this is who I am, then it will tell you about what kind of heart you got. Number nine, that other list, that fruit of the spirit list. I mean, I think even if, even if you're a non-Christian, you would agree that it's prettier just on the surface of it. It's, it's more appealing than that, that, that first list. I mean, who, who doesn't want peace? 
Who doesn't want joy, kindness? Don't you hate mean people? Who doesn't want that? But ladies and gentlemen, who does that? Who does any of it? Who desires that? Who wants that? Who loves that kind of stuff? People born of the Spirit. People indwelt by the Spirit of God. Ladies and gentlemen, the fruit of the Spirit is the natural produce appearing in the lives of Spirit-led Christians. And that is freedom. i got one more. Number 10. I want you to notice something in verse 24. Can I read it for you? And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Guys, victory, that's kind of a cheesy word, but progress, advance spiritually, success, growing, getting somewhere spiritually, always begins with the indicative. I've said that before. You understand what I mean, guys? The little English that you remember from the eighth grade should help you. In the English language, there are three kinds of sentences. There are interrogatory sentences. Those are questions. There are exclamatory sentences. They have an exclamation point at the end. And then there are indicative sentences. An indicative sentence is nothing more than a statement of fact. If I am ever going to make any progress in my walk with Jesus Christ, it always begins in the indicative. Look at verse 24 again, guys. It's an indicative statement. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and and desires. Guys, don't you love that word belong? Those who belong to Jesus Christ. And because I'm in union with Jesus Christ, I have made or it has been made a distinctive break with the flesh. By God's grace, a death blow has been dealt to flesh. A battle continues, yes. But the outcome is assured. For whom? Those who belong to Christ. What do they look like? They're characterized by... Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. And guys, then what the Apostle Paul does in verse 25, he simply restates and rephrases the same thing. He simply states, and again, it's an indicative sentence. If we live by the Spirit... Let us also walk by the Spirit.
Guys, for us who belong to Jesus Christ, the verdict is already in. You're not going to have to wait before you stand, when you stand before God to find out what the verdict about you is. It's already in. Um, I belong to Jesus Christ. That's been settled. Now, having settled that, I now seek to yield, to rely on, to follow the leadership of God's Spirit, or I walk. Now, guys, get this straight. You must notice the sequence. Those who live, then walk. Not, if you'll walk and do and obey, then you'll live. Folks, I don't belong because I walk. I walk because I belong. Do you see that? This is just the... The inevitable fruit of those who belong to Jesus Christ. Guys, we don't stop sinning in order that we, in order to be more like Jesus Christ. Do you hear that? I said that. We don't stop sinning so that we can be more like Jesus Christ, but we seek to be more like Jesus Christ. And we end up sinning less. Becoming more like the Savior, oddly enough, comes to pass when we learn more, not less, about our sin. And every time I see it afresh, every time I see my sin anew, And that's a lot. I am reminded. It's covered. It's paid for. I belong. In each new exposure of my sin. Should drive me back to the place. Where I'm reminded of what it was that paid for my sin. Guys, the solution for us in our battle is not to go try harder. Read your Bible more, pray more, come to church more. The solution is to go back to Christ. Refresh yourself in the provisions that he made for us by his life and death. And then, get back in the race. That, ladies and gentlemen, is how the supernaturally transformed heart Father, I I do ask that you would make this clear to your people.
they might understand that the battle that they're in is one that we often lose. But the provisions that you have made for us is the thing that keeps us striving, walking. We walk because we belong. We don't belong because we walk. What a a glorious gospel it is to preach, O God. And for those who have misunderstood it, for those who have thought the way to become yours is to perform well, would you show them again the only one who has performed well is Jesus Christ. And based on his performance, we are safe. Father, if you brought people here this morning who have not yet met this Savior of ours, would you cause them to see the great beauty, freedom, that is ours as a result of belonging to Christ. Do that for Jesus' sake.